Welcome again. I'll, I'll keep reading uh, into Second Samuel. I think I told you guys a couple weeks ago, First uh, and Second Samuel are really one book. They got split in the middle right after the death of Saul. Uh, so the story just keeps going. I'm going to read Second Samuel chapter 1. Please try to keep it open in front of you on an app or in a physical Bible since this is a longer passage and we'll be going through the whole thing. Second Samuel 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle. And also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me. And he called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood behind him, and I killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it's written in the book of Jasher. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen. 
and the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is sweeter than honey. It is more valuable than all the gold in the world. Show us its beauty and its value this morning, even in this very sad, very tragic, very shameful story. Help us in the sadness of David to bring to you our own sadness, but most of all, help us to see in the shame of of Saul and the shame of David, the shame of Jesus as he died on the cross for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Many of us here this morning have had the painful experience of seeing our parents die. For some of us, the sorrow of a parent's death was and still is much worse because the relationship itself was deeply broken. Painful, perhaps even abusive. How do you grieve? How can you grieve? the death of somebody who has harmed you so much. Particularly when it's someone that God placed in your life, somebody whose virtues and vices God has used to make you into who you are today. How do you grieve the death of someone like that? You could extend the same kind of questions to other kinds of death. A shattered marriage, an imploded church, a devastated career. In our passage today, we are entering into the grief of David over the death of Saul. Saul was Israel's deeply flawed king with whom David has had a deeply complicated relationship. You remember from way back in 1 Samuel, Israel was tired of being ruled by God as their king. And so they had demanded from the prophet Samuel an impressive and visible human king to rule and defend them like they saw the kings of the surrounding nations doing. And Saul fit the bill. He was tall. He was handsome. He was spectacular. He did have some flashes of insight and humility and tenacity. But overall, we saw in the narrative of 1 Samuel that Saul's life was marked mainly by insecurity and weakness. And worst of all, disobedience. Saul did not want to obey God. He thought he knew better. He thought he could cut corners. He thought good intentions were enough. And so about 15 years before the story we just read, 15 years before Saul's death, God had rejected him as king over his people. Back then God had told him, I'm going to raise up a man named David. He's going to be a man after my own heart. He's going to be a man marked by humility before me and my word. Since then, in the ensuing 15 years, David has been fleeing from Saul. David was a very young man, probably a teenager when all this began. He's grown up on the run. He's been, as Saul is chasing him around, he's descending deeper and deeper into darkness and evil. He has repeatedly tried to kill David, even though early on David had served Saul in a very close role. Uh, David had fought for him and his armies and won many battles for him. David had even married his daughter. This is his father-in-law. On the eve of Saul's death, he is horrified to meet the ghost of the prophet Samuel. Saul's so desperate to find out what he's supposed to do in this battle with the Philistines. 
the ghost of Samuel appears and tells him nothing more than what he'd already told him 15 years before. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand. He's given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. Samuel then tells him that tomorrow God is going to kill you and your sons and your army in battle. And so you arrive at 1 Samuel chapter 31, which I've titled The Anointed Humiliated. The Anointed Humiliated. Uh, as you jump into 1 Samuel chapter 31, there's no uh, lead-in, there's no description, there's no warm-up of heroic feats of any back and forth in the battle. The account just launches straight into defeat. It says that the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled. They fell slain. We hear that all, of three, all three of Saul's sons who are there are killed in this battle and then Saul himself is surrounded by the enemy and they are pumping his stomach full of arrows. He's in agony. In desperation, he calls out to his right-hand man, his armor bearer right there, and he begs him to kill him before the Philistines get to him to torment him, to disfigure him in his final moments. To the very end... Saul is not concerned with God. He is still, like he was before, afraid of how he's going to be perceived, afraid of how he's going to be treated. The armor bearer rightly refuses to murder Saul, and so Saul kills himself by plunging himself onto his sword. He is still, to his final moments, he is still desperate for control. He thinks that he can somehow engineer a death with dignity even though God is the ruler of life and death and so has forbidden all kinds of murder, even self-murder, even if your intention is to escape a great deal of suffering. Saul has mainly been a bad guy in the story, but this story, the passage here at his death, does not celebrate his death. The emphasis here is on the tragic shame of it all. The tragic shame of Saul's death. This deafening clash between what Saul could have been and should have been alongside the utter failure that he has turned out to be. In his stubborn opposition to God, Saul was doomed to defeat. There was no escaping it. And yet when God's judgment now finally crashes down upon him, we are sobered and shocked we're sobered by his pathetic frailty and we are shocked by his continued self-absorption even at such an end verse 6 summarizes all of it and emphasizes for us that the humiliation is not just for Saul but it's for all of God's people verse 6 says thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And then right after that, we hear that even the wider community is humiliated. Everybody is crushed all at once. You hear that those who are living nearby see what happened. They see what happened to Saul and to his army, and they flee from their homes and their villages. And to make it worse, the barbaric Philistines are now taking over their homes and their vineyards and their stuff for themselves, sleeping in their beds, drinking their beer, taking over their homes. Imagine someone who hated you took over your house. Saul killed himself in order to escape being humiliated by the Philistines. But ironically and tragically, not even death can spare him from this humiliation. They find his corpse and they quickly defile it. 
They decapitate him. They nail his body to the wall where all the moms and dads can bring their kids to laugh about what happens to people who stand up to the Philistines. They put his armor in the temples of their gods as a trophy. They think that by defeating and by humiliating the king of Israel, they have also defeated and humiliated the God of Israel. That their gods have triumphed. It's a total humiliation of Israel's anointed king and with him his family, the wider community, and even in a sense of God himself. What kind of God allows his king to suffer and to die so shamefully? As tragic as it is, Saul is getting what he deserves. For those opposed to God, there is no escaping from the shameful consequences of sin. But in his humiliation, we also have here an echo of the humiliation of Jesus himself. Jesus' humiliation as he was stripped naked, nailed to the cross. Unlike Saul, Jesus did not try to escape the shame of his death. And unlike Saul, Jesus was not suffering for his own disobedience, but rather for ours. But like Saul, the bloody and the disfigured misery of Jesus seemed to everyone around, even his own friends, it seemed to prove that God had failed before the fearsome rage of Rome and of Satan. But in verse 11, the brave, valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead sneaked behind enemy lines to recover the mangled corpses of Saul and his sons. They honor them with a proper burial. Now, you might remember that one of the very few highlights of Saul's rule was this early rescue of this town called Jabesh-Gilead. Under the power of God's spirit, Saul had gone up and saved them from a terrible defeat. At the death of Saul, we have this little echo of better times in Saul's life. But we're also getting a glimpse uh, with the way that these men are honoring Saul. We're getting a glimpse of the way that David is about to honor him. Even though unlike these men, uh, Saul had not done much of any good for him. Saul has mostly only harmed David. And yet David honors him anyways. So you move from the anointed, humiliated, now to a different anointed, to David himself, the anointed infuriated. The anointed infuriated. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, we're reminded that during this whole battle, David has been 70 miles away defeating the Amalekites. Uh, this was the very nation that Saul had refused to fight like God had commanded him. When Saul refused to fight the Amalekites, this is when God said, that's it. You're done. You're rejected. I'm moving on. David has just won a great battle against them. In God's providence, David has been totally removed from this battle where Saul's going to die so that it will be totally clear to everybody that God's the one who placed him into power and that David did not weasel his way onto the throne by his own wisdom or his own strength. God is the one who puts David on the throne. And so David has just won this great battle. Things were looking really bad for him and his men, if you remember the story from towards the end of 1 Samuel. Uh, but then David wins the battle. He wins all his stuff back. Uh, their families have been captured. They get all their families back. David's having a wonderful day. He's had this great victory after things look like they're going so bad. But then David gets this horrific stomach-churning news. A man, ironically, an Amalekite, has escaped from Saul's disastrous battle. He runs up uh, showing the signs of mourning and of distress. 
And he deferentially bows down to David. He tells him what happened. He says the people fled from the battle. People have fallen and are dead. Worst news, he saves for last. He says Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. David, suddenly very worried about all this, presses the man for more information. But we get a very different version of the story uh, than we just heard from the narrator. The Amalekite says that somehow he got really close up to Saul, even though supposedly Saul has been surrounded by chariots, and that Saul begged him to put him out of his misery. And then in verse 10, the Amalekite smugly reports that he euthanized Saul, and that, oh yeah, I took his crown, and now I want to give it to you, David, my Lord. You see, the Amalekite is lying. He came across the corpse of Saul before the Philistines did, uh, but stripped his crown, rushed down to give it to David, thinking that by doing so, and by framing it as a heroic mercy killing, uh, that he would be welcomed, that he would be praised by this man that he knows is going to be Israel's next king, perhaps giving him a great job in his military. This man cynically capitalizes on the humiliation of Saul and of Israel to advance his own interests. The same kind of thing is relatively common in the classroom, on social media, in the office, even in churches. Now, how do you feel when a rival or a bully or a colleague gets what's coming to them and you stand to benefit? You probably are tempted to think the same kind of thing as this Amalekite. How can I turn this to my advantage? We can even find ways to turn our own sin into an opportunity for self-pity and self-promotion. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about uh, about 10 years ago, a big mega church pastor had cheated on his wife. Uh, they got divorced and he showed up six months later with a new wife and a new church and a blog talking about how all of this had better qualified him to be a great pastor and to sell books. David does not share this man's hunger for power and status and control. David can see through it all. He knows. He says, who are you again? And the, the guy tells him, I'm, a, I'm the son of a soldier. And that means he basically has the equivalent of a green card in Israel. It means he's been around for a long time. He knows better. He knows who Saul is. He knows who David is. He knows that he should have known better than to act so selfishly and cynically towards the king. Verse 14. How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And so David is rightly infuriated. He's no pacifist. In verse 15, he commands the Amalekite to be executed right then and there. And you see in this God exposing the self-deception and the self-promotion of a power-hungry man. God always finds you out. The anointed humiliated in Saul. And in David, we see the anointed infuriated. But now we see the anointed devastated. We said that David's been having this great day. But when he hears about the utter humiliation of Saul and of Israel, he and his men fall into a pit of grief. Verse 12, they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. It's a complete disaster. David sees it for what it is. Even though Saul has very badly treated him for many years, including multiple attempts at literal murder. David knew that this day was coming. He knew that Saul was destined for failure and for defeat. That because he had, that God had rejected him for his sin, that there was no way that Saul could stay king. 
But at the same time, David has been so convinced that God's going to deal with Saul in his own way and in his own timing that even when he has multiple chances to kill Saul, he refuses to do so. David is deeply convinced of God's sovereignty over all of this. He's deeply convinced of God's justice in all of it. And yet, his response to all of it is mourning. He does not shrug it off. He does not pull out his theology book and find the page that talks about how God is sovereign over everything. He does not click his heels because now it's his turn to be king and he can be done with all of this suffering, all of this running away. David does not do what politicians and their equally mindless acolytes do today in the minutes after some tragedy or after their enemies fail. He does not start tweeting about how he wouldn't have let this happen, about how this is a chance to do what I think is right, about how much better I am, about how I told you so. He doesn't do any of that. He laments the humiliation and the horror of sin and the way that it affects all of God's people. The way that it brings a bad name on God himself. Now David is not whitewashing the many things that Saul did wrong. His humiliating death uh, underscores that for us well enough. But David does recognize the significance of Saul. He does recognize that God was working through him, that God was using him, that God had called him to some purpose, even if it was a very sad and tragic one. He recognizes that Saul could and should have been so much more for Israel than he has so painfully turned out to be. Uh, It's something, I think, like how many baby boomers feel as they look back on the Vietnam War, on the 1960s, on LBJ, this time uh, marked by great suffering and tragedy and change. Uh, but also great significance. Uh, It's like how we said before, how some of us have felt in the wake of the death of a parent who very much failed to be what they should have been. But the closest parallel here for us, I think, is the kind of grief that we do feel and we should feel as we consider the humiliation of Jesus' church. It's weakness and it's shallowness. It's sin and it's apathy and it's fruitlessness its tendency to embrace charlatans, its tendency to conform to the world. We should grieve for the church, even when it's suffering what it deserves, even when it's happening to churches whose theology and practice is not what they should be. Back to the text. Look at verse 17, where we have David's actual lament. Uh, This is not just David doing raw emoting. He's not just running his mouth. Although there certainly is a need and a place for this kind of thing in the Christian life and our suffering. God wants us to come to him in all of our feelings, all of our emotions, all of our sadness, and to just tell him, pour out to him how we're feeling. But that's not quite what David's doing here. Uh, This is David writing out his grief in the presence of God. This is what the Bible calls a lament. Laments like this are all over the Bible. They're especially in the Psalms. And they give us a framework. They give us a model for how we can and we should take our own sadness and our own devastation to God. David said that this lament should be taught to the people of Judah. God wants us to learn how to lament. One writer says that David's lament here shows us that God's people should not be shoddy in their sorrow. 
We should not be shoddy in our sorrow. David begins by openly acknowledging the shame of it all. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. In verse 20, he forbids the enemy from gloating. He says, don't talk about this in Gath. Don't publish it as good news in the streets of Ashkelon. With great embarrassment, David knows what's happening right now. He knows that the Philistines are partying in the streets over the demise of Saul and what they think this means about their own gods. Uh, But the subterranean foundation of David's lament is this confidence that one day God will put an end to all of it. This is not wishful thinking. David knows that one day all false boasting will end. Even though Saul was a deeply sinful man and a deeply sinful king, David acknowledges the role that he had as God's anointed ruler. That in that sense, it was glorious and beautiful. But David particularly focuses on his beloved friend Jonathan, this man who was a very godly man. He was deeply loyal to David, even though it meant giving up his own claim on the prestige and the power and the status that would come with his father's throne. Saul did most things very badly, but he did do some things well under the influence of God's spirit. Uh, David is willing to acknowledge this, even though he's been very badly treated. He praises Saul at some level. uh, And even, I think, is letting the goodness and the glory of his son Jonathan kind of bleed over into the way that he's portraying Saul. In verses 22 and 23, he praises their prowess in conquering those who hate God and abused his beloved people. He says their bow and their sword uh, didn't stop spilling blood and fat. It's very gory, it's very graphic but it shows us God's commitment to fighting evil in this world and the goodness of doing so. In verse 24, he acknowledges that Saul brought some good and prosperity to Israel. As horrible as he was to David, David finds a way to honor him. He finds a way to face that this is a genuine tragedy, not just an opportunity for David to advance, not just an opportunity for David to stop suffering. There's an echo here, I think, of how Christ loved his own enemies. Uh, When Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem a week before he would be crucified there, he he knows that they're going to murder him. He knows that he's going to be killed after a sham trial. Uh, He knows that Israel and Jerusalem are going to suffer these horrible consequences for doing so, that, you know, a few decades later, the Romans are going to wipe them out. But instead of gloating over them because of what they're about to do to him, as Jesus is descending the hill into Jerusalem, we hear in the Gospels that he weeps for them. He weeps. He says, how I wish that you would have listened but you wouldn't do it. David saves his deepest lament for his best friend, Jonathan. He says, I'm distressed for you, my brother. You could translate that as I'm depressed over you. My brother, Jonathan, very pleasant. Have you been to me? Your love to me was extraordinary. It surpassed the love of women. He said, I've never had a friendship like this. In his abysmal grief over the suffering of his beloved friend, we also get a glimpse of the grief of Jesus over the suffering of his beloved people. Uh, Exemplified, I think, uh, by that story of Lazarus. Remember the story in the Gospel of John? Uh, Jesus is one of his closest friends. This guy named Lazarus. His sisters were some of Jesus' closest friends. Uh, Jesus showed great sorrow over his death and over the suffering of the family. Listen to the way that this is portrayed. This is John chapter 11. When Jesus saw Lazarus' sister weeping and those who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then they bring him to the tomb of Lazarus. They show him where he's laid. And it simply says that Jesus wept. So they said, see how he loved him. 
Jesus grieves over the misery of sin and of its effects on his dear friends, on you and me. So David's lament ends with this third appearance of the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. It closes with this emphasis on humiliation and devastation. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, the song of Hannah has already set out the whole story for us. It's given us a framework for understanding what God's doing through his kingdom. It reminded us that God throws down the lofty. And in Saul's own life, his own pride, God has now knocked him down even though he was so outwardly impressive. But the great horror of it all, of course, is that Saul's downfall brought with it great collateral damage for God's people, including David's best friend. Many of us have suffered the effects of other people's sin, but worst of all, we are suffering the effects of our own sin. We can and we should lament the sadness of life in this sinful world. But as Hannah had already shown us, lament does not have the final word. Hannah told us this way back at the beginning of 1 Samuel. She said, the Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Because you see, there is a crown beyond the cross for all those whose hope is in the Lord's anointed King, Jesus. Jesus did not escape the shame of the cross like Saul did, but rather he bowed beneath it. Jesus loved his enemies by suffering God's judgment for their disobedience, not his own. Jesus conquered sin and death for them. Jesus has secured for us forgiveness and reconciliation from God so that we might become his friends, beloved and lovely in the sight of the Father, no matter how shamefully we suffer. Let's pray. Father, we're sobered by the suffering and the humiliation of Saul. But most of all, we're sobered by the suffering and humiliation of Jesus. Because it wasn't for his own sin, it was for our sin. Help us to see in his suffering our life. Help us to find joy in the midst of sadness. Knowing that you are the one who doesn't just bring down to the grave, but that you are also and ultimately the one who brings up into eternal life. Help us, Lord. So many of us are suffering today. So many of us are grieving. Teach us to turn our grief into lament, to bring it to you, and to find hope in you. And in the resurrection of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.